0: All right, if you want to turn to Jonah chapter 3, the text that uh, we're going through tonight. We've been in a series on Jonah for the last five weeks. We've got two more, uh, but we'll be in Jonah 3 tonight, starting in verse 1. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh, Now, Nineveh was a very large city, and it took three days to go through it, and Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes covered himself with sackcloth, sat down in the dust. And this was the proclamation he issued to Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals or herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God and let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw that they did what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. This is a story of God's mercy. And mercy is infuriating. Here's what I mean. Uh, In high school, I played football for a local, small, private school, and that school was really good at basketball, and we were horrendous at football, and we were so bad that there was a special rule called uh, the mercy rule that was enacted on us. Some of you are familiar with the mercy rule in high school football. They don't do this in college and pros, but in high school, the mercy rule uh, takes place when a team is down by 42 points. And when I was in high school, the mercy rule meant the game was over if the other team went up by 42 points. And so at my school, this would happen every single game. And so we went from just trying to, like, prepare to try to win a game to the goal was to not get 42 pointed. And other teams knew this. And so it was the other team's goal, and they told us this, that they were going to 42 point us by halftime. And so it was, like, we have to at least make it to halftime before the mercy rule goes into effect. And so, like, we would play the whole game trying to, like, stall and run the clock out before the half so that we didn't lose by 42 points in one half. That's how miserable we were. And so, like, you hear this thing, the mercy rule, if mercy is, you know, like, relenting or, like, giving up on, you know, somebody deserves something, you decide not to give it to them, right? This is, I did this, of mercy. And I remember just being infuriated by it, like oh, man, we're going to get the mercy rolled again. Like, them taking pity on us, we stink. We're so bad that we have to be, we're, like, at the mercy of the other team. Mercy can be infuriating. If mercy is something that when you deserve X, Y, and Z, and then you don't have it, we talk about, like, the difference with grace and mercy. Grace is when we get what we don't deserve. Mercy is when we don't get what we do deserve, right? Someone has relented. And, like, for me, with that experience in high school football, it was, like, Depressing. It was draining. It it just like sucked the life out of me to be the mercy roll from the other team. But the type of mercy that is divine, the type of mercy that is God mercy, does just the opposite. This is the kind of mercy that actually lifts you up from the pit. This is the kind of mercy that takes you from a place of humiliation and brings you to a place of glory. It it, it takes you from a place of, of death and brings you to life. Divine mercy is what we see in Jonah chapter three. And I would like to suggest that the world today is starving for divine mercy, is starving for, uh, we, we live in, in, in a culture where we're just at each other's throats. There is outrage, there is attack. We are going, just it, it's just constant to experience divine mercy from God, from each other. The world is just starving this. And, and I think that we find divine mercy in this uh, story in Jonah chapter 3. And I just kind of want to go through the story and see how it breaks down. Um, just give a little bit of commentary on the text. So here's some observations and then we'll draw some application out of it. But the story starts off with this this verse. In, in, in verse 1 it says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. So there's this mission. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Uh, If you've been following along, uh, even if you know the story of Jonah, what you'll find is this is pretty much like an echo of chapter 1, verse 1. Jonah is made up of two different stories. It's made up of seven different scenes, and here we have kind of a a going back to the beginning. So in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, God comes to Jonah, tells Jonah he has this mission, he wants to go to Nineveh. Jonah runs away. Jonah ends up in the Mediterranean, and the fish. We talked about that the last few weeks Well, now he has a second chance. After he's been spit out onto the shore, God comes back to him and says, Jonah, again, I want you to go to Nineveh. And and just in this verse, something about God's character is revealed. And if you've been following this story and and following kind of like God's heart for humanity and then Jonah's heart for humanity, it's amazing that the character of God is that our God is a God of second chances. He shows up and he says, Jonah, Jonah. I know your history. I know what you've done. I know how you've missed this last time, but I'm calling you again. The same calling I gave you last time. I want you to do this. I have this mission for you. And that doesn't reveal that God is a God a second chances. What's interesting is that God doesn't criticize Jonah in this verse. He doesn't. He doesn't offer any sort of like critique, criticism, or uh, a reminder of his past. He doesn't. Uh, say, look what happened last time. He just simply moves forward. Our God is a God of second chances who gives us grace that just says, I know what the past is. Here's your future. And he says to Jonah, let's go. Let's move forward. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. He says, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. So he's got a message for Jonah. It says, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city, and it took three days to get through. So Nineveh is about 500 miles northeast of where uh, kind of where Jonah's living, and we know that it's the capital of this massive empire, the Assyrians. It's kind of like the epicenter, epicenter of corrupt power in the ancient world. It's evil uh, they're known for how they treat uh, the their prisoners of war. They, they, they've like invented ways of torture. Uh, this is a, a, a place that um, in, it, you would shudder when you hear about this place in the ancient world. Um, it was, it was a, an evil and wicked place. And Jonah knows that. And Jonah doesn't want anything to do with it. That's why he runs in the first part of the story. And God says, I want you to go there. It's this, this powerful city uh, they, they were able to like, excavate kind of the boundaries of it. It was surrounded by like a seven-mile wall. Um, it was uh, a, a city that not only was it large, it had these massive suburbs. That's why they think it took like three days to go through it. Um, it was just uh, a place of power. It was kind of like maybe like what New York City is to the world today. It's what it was to the ancient world. Um, one of the largest kind of global cities. At the time, they think there was like 120,000 people uh, which seems not very big today, but for the time back then, it was like the biggest city in the world. And they were just known, known for, for their wickedness. They were known for all the terrible things that they did. People were terrified of them. And if you were the neighbors, you would have been terrified of them too. And so when we start to kind of like talk about like why does God have this message of, uh, for, for them to repent, it's because of the way that they're treating everyone around them. And so sometimes when we read like, through these Old Testament stories and we hear about the wrath of God, we're like, how could God do that to people? How could a good and righteous God allow these certain things to happen? And then you start to hear about the people who, who the, the judgment and the wrath are for. And you, you hear things like these Ninevites were exploiting their neighbors. There was social injustice. They were taking advantage of others. They were treating people like cattle. Uh, they were enslaving others. And, and if you're in the context and your neighbors of the Ninevites, what you might say is, these people are so evil, where is the just God, and how will he allow this to continue? Why does he allow this to continue? How does God d- d- look, look at what the Ninevites are doing and saying, that's okay? And I think that's where Jonah stood in this story. He was like, no, no, these guys, they destroyed the northern kingdom, Lord. I don't want to go up there and, and preach a message to them. Just bring about the destruction. Bring it on. These are a wicked and evil people. But what this story also reveals, not only does God a, a God a second chances. God is a God who cares about the people of this world. Even those that seem far from him, even those that seem they have completely lost their way, we see that God has a heart for the nations. God has a heart for the people of this world, even the Ninevites. This story would have sounded radical to Jonah and his contemporaries. God's saying, go to the Ninevites with this message I have. Here's something Tim Keller says, commenting kind of on God's heart. And as we read through even the New Testament and the Gospels, it says, the Gospels give us the ability and the resources to love people who reject both our beliefs and us personally. Think of how God won you over, not by taking power, but by coming and losing power and serving you. How did God save you? He came not with a sword in His hands, but with nails in His hands. He came not to bring judgment, but to bear it. This message would have appeared radical to Jonah's contemporaries, but this is the heart of God. These are your enemies. These are people that you despise. It gives heart for the Ninevites, and He sends Jonah the second time to say, "I have a message." for you to proclaim. He cares about the people of the word, world. Verse four says, Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming this, 40 more days in Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, I've heard that this is the shortest sermon that's ever been preached. And I've heard it's the most successful sermon that's ever been preached. For someone that likes to preach and sometimes can be long-winded, I've heard people say, you, you know, Jonah only used like five words, right? Right? and all of Nineveh repents. Like Jonah only uses, it's, it, it's short, it's to the point, it's concise, and it's the message God gives him. It's also interesting because Jonah's a prophet, and when you read the prophets in the Old Testament, this isn't the kind of message they deliver when God gives them a message. In fact, these guys are kind of known as like the original gorilla theater. These, these minor prophets would show up, and their like, their eyes would be bulging, and their hair would be on fire, and they would, you know, have this great proclamation that would like Di- like disrupt the norm. Like they would come, and, and their idea was to awaken people. And so you would see these like prophets like, like Ezekiel, who uh, he did this thing where he, he set up the scene in like the middle of the city that he was preaching and proclaiming uh, God's message, and he, he camped out for 390 days, and it says that he actually like baked bread over dung. That would get people's attention, right? Crazy. Nuts, right? So uh, Jeremiah walked around with a yoke, an oxen yoke, on his shoulders, Isaiah walked around naked for three years with his message. Like, these are the kind of things, they would do this to to disrupt the norm. They would try to be awakening people. The prophets come with all sorts of these theatrical messages. And they would have been compelling. They would have caught everyone's attention. And then Jonah shows up in the most powerful and wicked city. And he has no theatrics. He has five Hebrew words that he says. He says, destruction's coming. Forty days, that's all you got. And and you start to realize, like, Jonah, Jonah's, like, being obedient here, but, like, his heart is not in it, right? Like, I've been there before. Like, his heart is not in it. He's just doing what God tells him to do. And you kind of, like, understand. So, but he's not acting like the Old Testament prophets would act, like, with this message. And it kind of leads to this question when it comes to, like, the heart for our enemies. Do we desire mercy for our enemies? Is it something that we could say and that we know, or do we actually desire mercy for people that are different than us? You think about the the climate of our country right now. What do we think about people that we disagree with? What do we think about our enemies? Is there this desire for kind of our understanding of of this message of God's redemption and salvation to transform their hearts? How do we view it? Is their desire for mercy. Here for Jonah, he delivers this message, and what we'll find next week is heart's not really in it. But here's the response. It says in verse 5, The Ninevites believed God, and a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, the top dog, right? One of the most powerful people in the world. He rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat down on the dust. So imagine, like, like there's kind of a progression that rises from his throne, takes off his robes, and then covers himself with sackcloth, sitting in the dust. And then he gives this proclamation to the people of, in- of Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles: Do not let people or animals or herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth, this, this idea of mourning, and let everyone call urgently on God. Calling urgently on God, let them give up their evil ways and their violence, and who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. What we find here, this these people who receive this divine mercy is this progression. There's this This idea of belief or awareness, oh my goodness, here's what's happening. This is what God's up to. There's this idea of humility. There's this repentance that takes place where they're they're humbling themselves, they're putting on the sackcloth, and then eventually there's this hope. We see this progression with the king. We see this progression with Nineveh of how they receive this divine mercy by belief, repentance, and hope. And the belief I think is important to understand what's going on here. They have this deep sense that something terrible is about to happen, right? They have this deep sense that there's this wrath that's going to happen. And again, as we start to talk about like what does the wrath of God mean? What does it look like in the Old Testament? What does it look like now? We have all sorts of ideas of what wrath is. Um, but I, I think like as we as we consider what wrath is, there we sometimes we get caught up in thinking like oh it's almost like karma. So like if I do something bad, God will smack me. Or if I do something wrong, then there's these consequences. Um, but, I, but I've heard theologians talk about really this wrath that's kind of, it's not this like inworking of God, it's this outworking of God who's sovereign over kind of the natural order of how creation works. So if you remember the story that first week where I was talking about the pizza box nachos and the consequences of me eating pizza box nachos, the consequences are what? I get sick. I was driving over here today and had to stop to get gas. And I was, as I was putting gasoline into my Jeep, uh, one of the things I was thinking is this is what gasoline is for it fuels our vehicles. Do you know what gasoline is not for? Like my consumption. Like if I were to drink the gasoline, uh, that's not what the gasoline's for. I'd be using for it something gasoline for something that it's not for and it would harm me. And if it didn't kill me, it would make me sick. And it would make me sick that I'd take me to the hospital, they'd probably have to like pump my stomach, then we'd get this huge hospital bill that we'd be, you know, oh great, got to pay this off and then, you know, would have this weird like reputation, he's the guy that drank gasoline. <laughs> And, and, you know, if, like, someone, like, lit a match around me, it usually isn't an issue. But if I'm, like, full of gasoline, all of a sudden I'm combustible. And you start to realize, like, the, the way that when we take things that were meant for something and use them for something that they're not, there are these, like, natural outworkings where there's these consequences. And, and, and because of that, those consequences start to, like, they, they almost, like, are compounding interest. It, it creates issue that creates issue that creates issue. And what happens when you have an entire society or culture that's doing that, like the Ninevites, when you have people that are, are, are exploiting their neighbors, selling women and children off into slavery? What happens Like with the, the, the compounding consequences where this outworking, outworking wrath of God, where he says, I've ordered the world, I've put things in place, I've, I've, I've made things good. And when, when you've missed the mark of that, when you start to not do things, we have this, we call it sin, which is missing the mark of God. There are these consequences that not only affect you and they affect the people around you. The consequences of our decisions lead to this outworking of the wrath of God in the world around us. It does, that means that God's engaged with the creative order, but our choices have consequences. I heard one example, it would be like if, you, if you're watching a house that's on fire and that house is burning down, but you can't see the flames, you just see it kind of like slowly, like combust from the inside and collapse. Belief, all of a sudden, to have your eyes opened, to become aware, is for someone to say here to give you a visual of what the flames look like, and you realize, oh, the house is on fire. And for the people of Nineveh, this this message that Jonah gave them opened them up to this awareness and belief of, oh my goodness, this is what's causing this is the house is on fire. The, the way that we are interacting with each other and and our neighbors has created this mess. One scholar, uh, Alec Moitner, who wrote a commentary on this passage says, in a world created by a good God, evil and injustice are inherently self-destructive. The resulting social disintegration expresses God's wrath. He presides over the cause and effect processes he has built into creation. So they are expressions of his holy rule in the world. That is, God has created the world so that cruelty and greed and exploitation have natural disintegrative consequences that are a manifestation of his anger toward evil. Jonah shows up and he says, this place is wicked, it's evil, and you guys got it coming. Live by the sword, die by the sword you guys are becoming victims of your stomach. You've eaten the proverbial pizza box nachos and now you're gonna pay. Tim Keller writing about this says, the text shows that the impulse toward exploitation and abuse was also eating away at the fabric of Nineveh's society. It wasn't merely that the Assyrians as a nation were oppressing other nations, but individuals were violent toward one another, poisoning social relationships. There's brokenness in this world. And these Ninevites were just the personification of evil. The personification. So you have this idea where they they become aware of it. There's this belief that takes place. Oh my goodness, we all of a sudden can see the flames. And then we see this heart of humility with them where there's this repentance that takes place, where it's not only this thing that makes sense in their mind that they believe, but they they start to change their behavior. They change their behavior. This humility comes in that says, okay, we need to change. It's interesting, the wording again, it says, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne and he took off his royal robes and he covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. If you're reading this in the original Hebrew, you'd find this pun. Uh, the word that he, he rose from his throne is this word kisei, and he covers himself with, with, uh, with sackcloth, uh, covered as kasah. So he rises from his kisei, and he covers himself with his kasah. He, he moves from this place of, of being this royal figure, and he gets down into the dust. This represents for him this, this path of repentance, of humility, of realizing that he's been wrong. This is, it, it seems like this moment of conversion of him where it moves from belief into his actions. And he comes with humility and repentance. James chapter four says, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. We have this awareness of our own brokenness and the things that we've done that are creating and and helping to perpetuate this destruction in the world around us. We have this moment where we humble ourselves before God but the divine mercy always takes us and lifts us from the pit into something that is more life-giving. First John 1 John 1.9 says if we confess our sin, His faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. All of us are faced with this decision where we realize like when we look around at the world and we see all the brokenness of the world and, and when you look at the exploitation and, and the evil of Nineveh, the writers of scripture started to say, yeah, that that is actually representation of what's happening inside of our hearts and our soul. There's something that's not right. There's something that's broken and we can feel it. And we come to this moment where we realize things aren't the way they should be inside of myself. We come to this place of submission where we say, God, rock bottom, let me experience this divine mercy. We come to this moment of desperation to God. It's also interesting, I think, when we hear the, the kind of the progression of the king, where he gets off his throne, he takes off his robes, he humbles himself with a sackcloth, that represents mourning. There's this echo of Philippians chapter 2 in, in this story. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul's writing to Church of Philippine, he's talking about the attitude of Christ Jesus and saying we should have that same attitude. And, and what you realize is that this is this perfect king that we have in, in Jesus, who's bringing about redemption for the world. And think of like it, uh, the, the action of this king in Nineveh, which brings about uh, an example for his people uh, to, to, to experience God's mercy. We have this king who says in Philippians chapter 2, that who being very nature with God did not consider equality with God something to be uh, grasped or used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, he, found, he came, found the appearance of a man, and he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalts him. When it comes to fixing this brokenness inside of us, we have this perfect king who's done that. And almost in a way that kind of echoes what this king of Nineveh does is he sets this example We have a God who has come down, who has humbled himself, who is our king. And this is the gospel story. The things that we deserve because of our own brokenness, God relents. God offers us life. He lifts us up from the pit. In the midst of this belief in humility, we find true life. Life that's eternal. Then the king of Nineveh says, who knows? God may yet relent with compassion and turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. The message turns to hope. The message turns towards the future. Verse 10 says, when God saw that they did and how they had turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. Here's hope. Here's future. Our God, our King, has come down. He's humbled himself on the. We experience his divine mercy through this belief moment. We consider kind of the state of our world right now the wildness, the brokenness, all of the information that's out there, all of the way that we treat our neighbors. We have to come to this place to say, what's wrong with the world is wrong with me. This world can't be fixed until I'm willing to fix myself. And I think our nation needs the church, first and foremost, to say, God, fix the things that are wrong with me. If we can't lead like that, our nation's doomed. Our world needs the church. Set this example, even like the king of Nineveh, who gets off his throne, Says, Lord, deal with me first. I think as a church, we can't fix the problems of the world until we fix ourselves. We come to this moment where maybe it's for the very first time we have belief, humility, hope. Or maybe it's something that we are reminded of. Oh yes, I need fixing. Humility, Lord, lift me up. Let me be hopeful. Maybe today we need to just have a, a moment with God. Revaluate kind of where am I at spiritually? What's going on inside of my heart, my soul? And God, would you meet me there today? And then there's this calling as God's people. This God who is a God of second chances, this God who has a heart for the nations. Do we want divine mercy for our enemies? Do we want divine mercy for those who are different than us? Do we carry a message of hope with us? And I think like Jonah, what's easiest to go through the motions and to forget that this grace that has transformed us is actually a radical grace that God offers to the nations, to others, to people who we think are different than us. So maybe today it's just a time of reflection as Tim comes back up. We wrestle with these questions. Where am I at at with belief? And then from there, where am I at with humility? And where am I at with hope? Am I a message of hope to others? Jeremiah 18 uh, offers us some words that I think would be a good prayer. Verses six through eight says this. Can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so you are in my hand Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warn repents of its evil, and I w- then I will relent and not inflict on the disaster on it the disaster I had planned. So I did that we are like clay that God is molding. May we have a repentant heart. Let's pray. Lord, this is a heavy passage. As we read Jonah, we are reminded of the lightheartedness of the story that we remembered from when we were children. And yet your word has a way of having a depth to it that shocks us as adults. But we're reminded of your character your heart for this world, our response to who you are. And we see something as what seems as wild and wicked and evil as a place like Nineveh. Your radical mercy is revealed, which gives us hope. And Lord, in the midst of a heavy message like this, where we look through Jonah 3, we realize that life is truly found not in our positions or our titles, not in our thrones, not even in royal robes, but when we humble ourselves. And today, Lord, we want to be people who are open to your work in our life surrendered, submitted. We ask that you would move in our hearts, that you would break down our pride so that we can experience true life that is eternal. So we come to you today with humble hearts, Lord. And we come to you today hopeful for the future. Your sons and we pray. Amen.